Today we are here to talk about combating misinformation and the timing for today's event uh, for the start of the federal election was quite purposeful. Uh, by now most of us are accustomed to the age-old adage that a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets out of bed. But as our democracies descend further into the digital century, large online platforms, foreign actors, and targeted social media campaigns have begun to weaponize information well beyond the boundaries of traditional political spin. And that, speaking personally, is just anxiety provoking and inducing. So that's why we at Canada 2020 wanted to do this event today. Uh, it, it, we wanted to better understand how to spot information, uh, misinformation, contain it when it crosses our paths, and help keep flat platforms accountable for their role in facilitating dialogue. So to help us out first, our, our opening panel, uh, we have Elizabeth Dubois. She is an assistant professor of communication at the University of Ottawa. Katie Gibbs is the executive director of Evidence for Democracy, an organization, by the way, I suggest you keep as a part of your daily election 43 diet. And then finally, our dear moderator, David Moskrop, who, in addition to hosting a breakout podcast for Canada 2020, is a columnist for the Washington Post, a writer for McLean's Magazine, and author of my dad's favorite book of 2019, Too Dumb for Democracy. Please join me in welcoming our first panel. It's not a, a, a new problem. I mean, misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, you know, propaganda is an old problem, probably as old as politics itself. But it seems to be different today. What's different about it today? I don't know. I mean, I struggle with that question a lot because I think the obvious answer is the, the social media environment that we now get most of our, our information from. But I don't think, and, and I bet Elizabeth can speak a bit more to the sort of technical aspect of this, but I, I don't think that is the entirety of the problem. And I think, you know, one aspect of misinformation that I'm really interested in is when it's coming directly from politicians, which I think is what we're seeing a lot more of now, is sort of politicians really sort of, you know, boldly saying things that I suspect they know are untrue. And I don't think that you can't blame the social media companies for that. And so I think that is also one element that is that is different. I, I would largely agree. I think that we have uh, some changes in the distribution options for mis or disinformation that, that we didn't have before. Just as we have changed distribution options for regular old information that we do want to trust and do think is factual. So social media is one. Uh, the fact that search engines curate information for us because there's just so much out there and we need help winnowing it down, that plays a big role. There's a variety of other kinds of digital media that are being introduced into our daily media habits that are changing the way we interact with information. And because those changes exist, it op opens up new opportunities for potentially malicious actors to try and push their message forward or push other messages down. It also creates this space where our understanding of our own information systems has not quite caught up to those new systems. So you hear a lot about media literacy and digital literacy, and I think this 
is the place that that comes in because it's just difficult for us to figure out what to trust and what not to and how to dissect the questions about, well, why is this even showing up on my screen if we don't understand how those systems actually work? So, I mean, there's a number of problems with misinformation, but one of them seems to be that it, it there's an opportunity cost to it. It displaces good information. I mean, in a world of scarce resources, scarce time, scarce attention, scarce uh, space, you know, only so many things can show up in the top of the Google search, uh, misinformation becomes a particularly important problem. So let's flip that, though. Why is good information important? What, what, what role does good information serve in a democracy and, and perhaps specifically during an election? I'll start with Elizabeth and we'll... So, democratic theory, don't worry, I'm not going to stay on theory for too long. Um, democratic theory That's the best part. <laughs> the democratic, not that I'm a, I'm a tad biased, but I, I think that's the best part. No? I found no seconder Crickets. set. Okay, all right. Crickets, reasonably. Um, so, in theory, we need an informed citizenry to make their decision on election day. We need people to be aware of what their politicians have promised and what they've actually accomplished and what they haven't and why. We need people to understand what the current issues of the day are so that they can make an informed choice when they're contributing to their democratic process. There are also some democratic theories that go a step further and they say, not only do we need people to have this information, we also need them to be able to interact with each other and debate each other and engage in political discussions in order for them to adequately develop their own opinions which then guide their voting decisions. And so trustworthy information becomes really crucial for our democratic process to continue and to exist. And if we don't have information that we trust, then we risk having people who are voting from an uninformed position. Of course, we could say, but there's always people who are uninformed and not everybody likes to pay attention to the good information. Uh, and that's very true, which is why theory doesn't work all of the time. Uh, yes, I, and no, I, I agree, I agree. My, one of my favorite things to do is if you look at polls uh, or, or studies of people who say oppose high taxes or oppose Im uh, immigration, you say to them, what do you think the rate is? And what do you think the rate should, should be? And they end up giving you an answer uh, that is a way, I have no idea what the rate is. They think the rate is, you know, 10 times what it actually is. And the rate that they suggest is actually often higher than the rate that, uh, that exists, right? So they are, they are sure that the rate should be lower, by which they mean it should be higher than it actually is. Uh, but so speaking of good information, Evidence for Democracy does a lot of important work in, in helping us to create a, a more productive, trustworthy information space. Uh, what is it about your organization um, that you find particularly important or useful for, for uh, in securing the health of the information space? Well, I mean, it's a kind of a funny thing because we, our organization got started in around 2012, 2013, mostly working on sort of science issues. And so we were thinking about evidence more in terms of sort of like science policy and making sure that we are funding science and using evidence in how we uh, inform government decision making. And so uh, this whole concept of you know, misinformation was not really in the news when we sort of picked the name and started the organization. And then of course, now it's even sort of more relevant than ever. And really, it is based on exactly as Elizabeth put it, you know, having 
having access to information is essential for the public's ability to hold their governments to account. And, and I think it's not, it's not just an aspect of you know, good information and whether or not we have access to it. I think particularly now when you look at very polarized places like in the US, there's actually this sort of phenomenon called tribal um, epistemology, which is, is really now, it's sort of going even further where there's different groups of people who almost believe in completely different realities. And so I think for me, that's another, that's sort of like the, you know, if this progresses, that's like the worst case scenario, is that you can even get to this place where you can't even, you know, a democracy really can't function unless you can have a discussion and debate with people on policies, which is great, but you need to be able to have that discussion in a way that you all agree on some sort of basic facts. You know, you're all sort of buying into the same reality. And I think that's what concerns me a lot about the misinformation issue, is that the more ingrained it gets, the more we're sort of tiptoeing to that that endpoint that scares me. So it sounds like, I mean, that's a breakdown of, of shared reality, right? I mean, so there's some research out now, just recently, uh, that suggests that Canada is becoming increasingly polarized, and that the form of that polarization is partisan, and that partisans not only dislike parties and politicians from the other side, but people from the other side. So it isn't that uh, it's not the an MP or it's not the party; it's you as a X, Y, or Z. I mean, what do you do about that? How does good information counter that? Well, I think it's also interesting because I think the same studies showed that social media wasn't driving yeah. the polarization, which I think is a good point. I think often it's so easy to blame the social media companies, and I think often they're just exacerbating these tensions that already exist. Um, I mean, how you, how you counter, counter that with good information is, is a challenging one, because I think sort of what you were getting at, it's not like we are, it's not like we can pretend that we're currently living the ideal where everyone is using good information to make an informed decision, but I don't think that's a reason to not care about it because we're not at the ideal, right? We can still sort of work to get closer to that ideal where people at least have access to good information and we're decreasing bad information versus letting it sort of spiral further out of control. So the, the the argument of we're getting more polarized is tricky because there's a whole bunch of different variables. And, and like you said, that research that came out suggests that social media isn't really the, the driving factor or is, isn't a clear, clearly a driving factor. Um, it's also research that largely depends on people to tell the truth, which they don't when they're asked about politically tricky subjects. Um, we, we have to rely on survey data often because that's our only real option, but we also know that uh, people give socially desirable answers. And in the context of an election campaign, um, it's much more acceptable to be partisan and, and working for the, the ideological perspective that you come from, and we accept that and think that that's normal, and so if you collect your data in the run-up to an election or in a uh, context where even neighboring countries are in the run-up to their elections, you end up with data that maybe 
actually is representing the same feelings as the year or two before when you got different results. So I'm just going to, you know, the methodologist in me needed to put that on the table. Um, but then the next thing that I want to point to is there's two kinds of polarization I think that we're confusing a lot of the time that I think we really need to keep separate. So one is polarization in terms of who you're actually interacting with and who your friends and family are that you're talking with politics about and whether or not you are reaching out of your comfort zone to engage with people who have different perspectives than you. And that's a kind of polarization that has always existed. We call it homophily, but it's like very core and fundamental to human beings. We like people who are like us because then there are less surprises and we are more comfortable going about our daily business. The people who really, really love politics, though, they go out of their way to find people who have different opinions because they like the political debate and they like to engage in those discussions. So often, the most highly partisan people are also the people who spend time engaging with people from the other perspectives because that helps them build up their arguments. On the other side, we have polarization in terms of the information that we incorporate into our media diets. And so that's where I think things get a little more tricky. And that's where we get to the kind of potential of living in these different realities. Because if you're surrounding yourself with only the same kind of information, and you're only getting those ideas, and you're not somebody who also goes out in, of your way to find additional info, then you risk getting stuck in that spot. The good news is when you are media literate and digital li digitally literate, you typically do a lot of work to get yourself out of those, we call them echo chambers. You actually are somebody who's well equipped to do that and uh, we need to improve that kind of literacy among Canadians, um, but it's not as dire, I think, as, as some of the media discourse has been around this. If democracy collapses, and I say this as a, as a political theorist, I, I think it's got about a 50-50 shot at surviving the century. And a lot of serious people agree with that. So it, say, let's say doc, democracy has a 50-50 shot. And let's say that if it, if it collapses, one of the things that will have contributed to that collapse is political elites who refuse to exercise forbearance. Right? This is the idea that there are things that you can do, but you shouldn't do. And when you say, well, we're just going to see what we can get away with, the next person comes along and says the same thing. Uh, before you know it, you're off to the races, and that's the end of democracy. I think that's a bit of a problem in the misinformation space. So what role do political elites uh, have to play in resisting the spread of mis and disinformation? Start. Katie, I'm, I'm happy to lead on that one. I mean, I think a huge one. And I think that that's a big element of this that we don't talk about enough. Um, you know, even if you look at one of the biggest sort of misinformation examples we've seen so far in the lead up to the election campaign, this example of the story of a this child killer from the UK was going to be uh, sent to Canada, and Canada was going to welcome him with open arms. So this originated, the story originated in a UK tabloid. It had, it seems like it's a rumor that had popped up before. The media had already debunked it back in the summer, and then Andrew Shear's campaign tweeted about it, and that was really what gave it sort of new legs in this, you know, even more polarized election period. And I think, you know, I think that's honestly unacceptable. I think any, you know, a very quick Google search would have sort of debunked that. So it's not, 
you know, it's not a question of sort of not having the information. I don't, I don't know what sort of what that barrier was that, you know, led to them sort of, in my opinion, like blatantly spreading misinformation that had clearly been shown to be false. Um, and then, and then I think it sort of leads to another issue where even the, you know, part of the challenge with misinformation is that even when you, you know, fact check it and the media reports that it's false, it's still, it's still playing a huge role in the, in the media narrative. You know, that issue still got coverage in all of the mainstream papers. And even though the coverage, you know, did include that the original story had been debunked, part of the challenge is that often the misinformation is is stickier than the truth. And so even, even when you try to debunk it or fact check it, still giving it that much airtime still, I worry, makes it still stick with some people. Some people are still gonna end up believing it because of that. Um, so it, do, it does concern me and I don't know, I mean, I don't know what the answer is to that, but I, I absolutely think that, you know, the politicians and their staff, you know, have a huge amount of responsibility to this because often they're the ones that are sort of triggering it onto the media's radar, which is what is then getting it the widespread coverage. I mean, especially given that we all know this. I mean, if you look at the numbers, people read the headlines, they don't always read the articles, right? The number of people who read the headlines and share something, and I mean, you can look at the, at the numbers and say like, okay, we're getting a lot of shares on this, not a lot of reads, <laughs> right? So people are sharing off the top. But so I wonder, Elizabeth, what you think about uh, sort of elite-led pushbacks on, on misinformation, disinformation efforts? I think ultimately we need the spreading of disinformation to be socially unacceptable. We need it to be socially unacceptable for you and I. We need it to be socially unacceptable for journalists. We need it to be socially unacceptable for politicians. We need to have a system where we push back when we see that because if we don't, then journalists will continue to report on it and politicians will continue to spread it if it is politically useful for their campaign. Debunking doesn't work. There's, uh, there's definitely a utility to having debunking um, processes exist and it's important to have something that shows up in the top search result when somebody goes to try and check something because fact checking is helpful if you are already motivated to fact check but it's not great if you're not already motivated so we need it as a thing that people can go to it's not the solution for the average person who might have had something kind of flit across their screen when we think about politicians in this election campaign in particular it's their job to find ways to get their message out and to get people who are gonna vote for them to the polls and for them to make it their mission to not have other people who aren't gonna vote for them at the polls, right? That's, that's how this will work. And if we don't say this is unacceptable and if we don't have our journalists pointing to it and saying this is wrong, we can't do that, it will continue to happen. I spent a lot of time talking to journalists about how not to be duped by, by automated uh, social media accounts, political bots, and uh, the big thing that I get back a lot is, well, what if, what if a politician or a candidate has tweeted about it? Don't I have a responsibility then? And I think the only responsibility would be, this politician is spreading lies. Okay, so that, that's one way we can push back. 
But step one is identifying that it's misinformation or disinformation in the first place. So what are some tactics that, that folks can use, especially in the, in the context of busy lives and busy times, to identify misinformation and to, and to push back against it? Katie, you'll start. Um, well, so I think the first thing is to acknowledge that you are all susceptible to it. Um, part of what got me really interested in working more on this issue is, you know, after Trump's election, I noticed a very distinguished senior professor that I'm friends with on Facebook sharing a, an, anti -me an anti-Trump meme that, you know, as, as soon as I saw it, I thought, uh, I don't know, I'm going to Google this. And sure enough, a quick Google search showed that it was actually not true. And, and that really sort of stuck with me, the fact that even, you know, even professors can fall for this, I think, I think is a really important message to take to heart, that I think especially sometimes maybe on the left side of the spectrum and, you know, the more educated we are, we maybe think that this isn't a problem that um, we're going to fall for. You know, we're smart. We're not going to be, be duped by it. But I can tell you that you probably, most of you probably have shared something um, that is incorrect. I give a lot of talks to, to scientists on how to combat misinformation as an individual. And I often start by asking people to you know, put up the hand, their hand if they're willing to admit that they have accidentally shared something untrue. And most of them do. Well, let's do that. No pressure. Yeah, I think, yeah. But have you ever shared something... I know I have. I'll Did you recently share the Maxime uh, Bernier ass man billboard? Uh, yeah, that's a good Photoshop. example. I did. Yeah. Well, so that that's an interesting point because there, there's an example of you might not have shared that accidentally believing it was true. You might not have been duped by that yeah. misinformation, disinformation. You might have done that because it was funny, right? There's a lot of people who share a lot of things that are not true because they're funny, because they reflect what they're feeling even if it's not actually the factual state of things. And that becomes even more tricky to deal with because then it's not just about, okay, have you done your work to figure out what is or is not factually correct, but also are you prioritizing sharing quality information over sharing something that's gonna make you feel connected to the community of people that you uh, wanna share this joke with? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's. I do it to make friends, but I. But just sorry, I interrupted Katie. But sorry. So please. Well, so I think so. A, there's just acknowledging that you you are all susceptible to it, and then I think you know the actual mechanics of it are easy. I mean, you Google it, and usually it's pretty easy to find. You know, especially most of these things are pretty common. They've been debunked. They've been fact checked. So the actual mechanics of finding out the truth is easy. We can all do that. I find what is challenging and what takes a little bit of almost self-training is figuring out when you need to do that. And I think what's really important to keep in mind is that generally misinformation is, is going to be very emotionally charged. It's, it's meant to really connect with you on an emotional level and tap into your strongly held beliefs. So I think it's this, it's this aspect of retraining yourself that whenever you see some content that really makes you feel something strongly, a very strong emotional reaction, 
And, you know, I've been pretty successful in training myself to do this over the past year or so, that when I get that feeling and I just want to go and hit the share button as fast as I can, to me, that is now my signal that, okay, I actually need to take a second and find out if this is real or not. And I think almost every time that I've had this feeling and then I've checked, it has turned out to be false. And again, that, you know, I know we are busy and that process of actually checking it is generally pretty easy. You know, it's not about all of you becoming journalists and doing the, the digging yourselves. Usually that has already been done for you. It's just about actually stopping to do it. Anything to add? I, I agreed. Yes, definitely. I, the one other thing that I, I'd like to add to this conversation when I'm asked this question is a lot of people who are maybe older than millennials were taught about media literacy as think about what decisions the, the editor was making and what decisions the journalist was making. Think about who they choose to interview. Think about how they cut those quotes. And that was how you made sure that you were uh, taking on the information in the context in which it was presented to you. And, and you could read into that story and think about how that story was created and that was enough. And that's not enough anymore. Now you have to do all of that and you also have to do what we call reading laterally. You have to start with that piece and then you need to go to Google. You need to go to your friends and family, go to uh, somebody who is knowledgeable on the subject, talk to different people, look for different sources, different outlets might also be reporting on the same story. Go through all of those processes all around the information that's in front of you, and that's how you actually come to a sense of whether or not this is trustworthy content that is worth you bringing on and, and incorporating into your decision making, or worth you pushing away and ignoring and never ever favoriting or liking or sharing. So let's chase this down a little bit. It is misinformation, disinformation is a problem for everyone. We are all guilty of it. We are all not equally guilty of it. We are not all equally susceptible to it. There is a certain demographic variety. Can you talk a little bit about that? Boomers. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. There's, there's not studies in Canada yet. We don't have that data in the Canadian context. But in the US and in the UK, it's the 61 plus category that have the highest propensity for sharing disinformation online. So you're saying I have a couple years left before I have to worry. Just a few. All right. just I'm, a few. I'm a millennial technically, so I just- An elder millennial, right? Yes, an elder millennial. <laughs> we like to distinguish ourselves. Yeah. 1984. Uh, I share a birthday with uh, Norman Schwarzkopf and Wayne Gretzky, so make of that what you will. But so, is, okay, so I mean, if, if it is a problem for everyone, but, but not for everyone equally, um, how do we have that discussion that isn't that doesn't turn into, well, we know who to blame, let's get them. I mean, how do we have a productive discussion that says, okay, look, I mean, there are different ways to address this in different populations. Here's how we do it. Well, I think, I mean, I think part of the reason I think it's so interesting to target individuals for this topic is because I think this is only going to be a growing problem as technology changes. And so while our age group might not be the most susceptible to it today. You know, there is a point where we're going to be 60 years old if we're lucky, and it's gonna be entirely new technologies by then, and we will probably be susceptible to it then. So I think, I think really reframing it around that, that personal responsibility around 
what kind of information you're putting out into a polluted information ecosystem is an important one because it has to be framed like that and involve lifelong learning because the technology is going to change. And I think that's also why, you know, just regulating the social media companies, for example, is never going to be sufficient because there'll be new tech coming down the line. Um, but I think there has been a huge, you know, mismatch. If you look at what most of the the funds the federal government has put towards in their sort of like digital online literacy has all been towards youth. Um, so for some reason, I feel like there's still, we're still really largely treating this as a youth, you know, media and digital literacy problem when the facts tell us that that's not exactly where the problem lies. Anything to add to that? No. <laughs> uh, let's, We've been talking a lot about individual responsibility as a way to counter misinformation, disinformation, and that's fantastic. I'm all for individual responsibility. But what about structural reforms? What about regulatory reforms or, or even legal reforms? I mean, is there a role for structural change driven by either companies themselves or by government? Start with Elizabeth. Yes. Yes. Well, it sounds like we've solved it. Done. I think we're good. Everyone agrees? Structural reform? This seems like a structural reform crowd if I've ever seen one. <laughs> we're good. All right, we'll keep going then, I guess, until we get... So, when we're thinking about our information environment, we're thinking about all of these different sources of information that we have access to, and a lot of them are owned by large international companies which have shareholders as their thing they need to respond to, right? They don't have the good of the Canadian public as their number one goal. Often their number one goal of making money for their shareholders does in fact align with the public good because if the public turns against a company and stops using their service, then they don't do very well. But at the end of the day, Facebook and Google and Twitter, they all have to make decisions in a multinational context, and Canadian laws do not always align with the laws of other countries. They don't align with the other countries that we see as most similar to us, like the US and the UK, and they certainly don't align with countries that are authoritarian states, for example. And so this creates a really difficult regulatory system, and it creates a really difficult system for these companies. But when we say, look, if you want to make money on political advertisements in our election, you need to have an ad registry, companies decide either to have an ad registry or not to have an ad registry. If they don't have an ad registry, they don't make money on those advertisements. That's a form of regulation that is working right now. It's not perfect, and I think the ad registry needs more teeth to it. Um, but it's a first step towards regulation of tech companies in a political context that I think is largely very helpful. So uh, two last questions. I'll, give, I'll, I'll say the last question now to give you a chance to think about it. I, I'd like each of you to name one thing that, that people can do starting today to try to themselves recognize and push back against misinformation and disinformation. So we'll leave you with at least one big value add. But before that, I want to pick up on this point about jurisdiction. Canada has 37 million people, give or take. Uh, the United States has 370, 380 million people. Europe has 
I don't know, how, does anyone know how many people are in Europe? Quite, much more than, than in Canada. And, uh, and so, I mean, I guess it depends on how you define Europe. That's a different panel. <laughs> I, and so it raises the question of, okay, well, how do we do this together? How do we create a regulatory regime and perhaps an international norm, or if not an international convention that says it's not okay to do this, because misinformation, disinformation is also a problem of states against states. So how do we build effective international responses to this problem? I mean, are there things that we can do together in blocks or together as a, as a planet, as a united nations, if you will, uh, to, to address the problem? Tiny question. Yeah, just like, no big deal. I'm basically, I'm saying is, give us the piece of Westphalia in 280 characters or less. <laughs> um, I think that GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, I think that's the right acronym. Uh, GDPR is a good example of, in the EU, a bunch of different nations coming together and saying, this is how we want our data protection laws to look, and this is what we want uh, tech companies to do with our personal information. And it's imperfect in, in many ways, but it's an example of a large number of countries and a large number of users for these services saying, look, either change what you're doing or get out, and the major companies all changed what they were doing. How that works for disinformation is much more tricky because the line between what counts as disinformation and what counts as legitimate political expression is very murky and it is not easy to determine what is and what isn't within those bounds. And so I think that creates a different kind of context. The last thing I'll say on this is tech companies are already controlling our information. That's why we use Google. That's why we use Facebook. That's why we use Twitter. We can't consume all of the information that's out there. We need somebody to help us prioritize it. And so they're already making choices about what is worthy enough to be in front of our eyeballs and what isn't worthy enough. And that has something to do with this disinformation debate too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't have any magic answers to that big, big question, but I think I think some sort of a global solution like that would be very challenging because I think I think Elizabeth outlined really well earlier that you know politicians all have the same sort of outcome and goal but there's a lot of essentially norms around that around what are acceptable means to get to that end and I think even how you what is an acceptable mean to get to that end differs a lot in different countries, and so coming to any kind of a global agreement on this I think would be really challenging um, because we all define these things in quite different ways based on our, our own context. But I, I also think it's a good time to bring up something else we didn't really touch on, which is that you know, I still see a lot of discussion in this space focused on this sort of like foreign inter interference. You know, we talk, we still talk a lot about, you know, foreign bots and foreign bad actors trying to interfere with our democracy. And I think certainly what we've seen, you know, in, in 2019 so far in, in the Canadian space around misinformation is that it has been domestic. 
And uh, so far, there's been a report out looking at the Alberta election earlier this year. They did find some sort of evidence of um, what I guess you could call misinformation or disinformation. And it did seem to be driven by, by domestic um, actors. And so I think that's a little bit of a challenge, even, even in terms of how a lot of what the response mechanisms that the federal government have set up have largely been with a mandate to look at foreign-driven misinformation. And I think, I think a lot of times that's so much easier because we can sort of unequivocally say that it's bad because it is like foreign actors trying to interfere with our democracy. We can all agree that that is bad. But what we're realizing is that most of it is actually domestic. And then that is a lot trickier because it does get around these questions of what are our norms and are these just changing norms or are they right or wrong? And it's, it's all still pretty gray and murky. Even, so even in the case of foreign actors, I and mean, what the play though is to, is to exploit domestic cleavages, right? I mean, in the, in the case of the United States, the Russian play wasn't to create new divisions in America. It was to say, look at all these divisions. How can we get in there and make it worse, right? So if it does in, indeed come back to ultimately rest on domestic shoulders, um, that leads us to our final question. What is it that we can do as individuals today? If we left this room with the one thing that you can do, with this one easy trick that doctors are talking about, does everyone scroll to the end of the article on a legitimate news site, then all of a sudden it's like one easy trick to lose 40 pounds before your wedding tomorrow? Like, Where did that come from? But so what is, the, what is your one easy trick to, to solve the dis and misinformation crisis? No pressure. We fixed the piece of Westphalia thing. We fixed the international. Now we're going to fix this. So this is not going to solve mis and disinformation problems. But the thing that everybody can do is when information comes across your screen, ask, why is this on my screen? Who wanted it there? And if you follow that question long enough, you will probably figure out whether or not it is information that is worth you bringing in and incorporating into your political opinions and views and sharing, or whether it is information you should never let see the light of day. Yeah, and I think you know maybe on top of that sort of that element of taking responsibility for what you're taking in and plunking in your brain, you know I think I think right now we are at a time where politicians are testing the bounds of these norms to see to what extent it is acceptable to share misinformation. And I think we, and the one thing that you can do is let them know very clearly and loudly that it is not acceptable in Canada for politicians to share any kind of misinformation. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you very much. So we have, let's give them a round of applause first. We have, we've got 10 minutes for questions. I'll start up here. Hi, my name is Alex. Nice to meet you all. Um, so you talked about a lot, so you talked about politicians sharing misinformation or whatever. No, uh, we haven't touched on perhaps political support of bots and perhaps actually actively paying for bots. I know that was a big deal in the last US 
uh, election. I'm not sure to what extent that might be a big deal this time, but actually putting out their fake bots to do the work for them. Yeah, great question. I have a piece in policy options where I talk about this exact problem. We don't have clear sense of whether or not that kind of spending would necessarily get reported or be included in spending limits, which is a major problem because bots are a very useful promotional tool. And uh, I personally don't think that we should ban bots. I think that using bots in helpful ways, in transparent ways is good. Uh, but if we don't have any sort of mechanism that allows political parties or third party organizations to report when and how they're using bots, then uh, it stays under the cover and we don't actually know about it. Yeah, and that, so the example of the Alberta election, that does appear to be what was has happened. So basically there was a lot of bot activity um, that was supportive of the United Conservative Party. But again, because we don't really have any policies, it's not like other types of advertising where you do need to be transparent about it. We don't know who was actually behind those bots or why. And so that is sort of what I was getting at when talking about trying to figure out are these are these just the new way of doing things and is it just the new version of promoting a post on Facebook or or is it something different and i think we're we're kind of figuring that out as we go thank you next oh Hi, I'm Jim, one of those susceptible boomers uh, who's <laughs> retired. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I do try to read my news from The Economist and places like that. But what concerns me is I think I understand the political parties can buy from Google or whoever uh, a whole lot of information about voters such as myself and then target things towards uh, each of us, sort of like what they did in the Brexit uh, campaign. Is that really happening here in Canada? So... Most of the time, they're not buying from Google, Google or Facebook. Most of the time, what they're doing is they are using the information that Google and Facebook have about all of us without actually themselves getting to have that data and keeping it in their own databases. And, and that's an important distinction because who owns the data uh, also impacts who could get hacked and how our data could then end up in the wrong people's hands. It also impacts our own um, privacy because corporations in Canada are uh, subject to our privacy laws and so they have really strict rules about how they can deal with our data whereas political parties often are pretty much exempt from those kinds of laws and so in this case we would rather the companies have our data and then Facebook kind of essentially like lend out the targeting capacity that's, that's the data side of it. On the, are we being targeted? Yes, 100% we are being targeted by the personal information that is accessible because we have been browsing the internet because it's a necessity for decades. Um, and that's probably not going to change. What might be interesting in this election is the ability of these parties to upload data that they have collected about us to Facebook or Google and essentially merge that with the massive data sets that those companies have and then target us in an ev even more particular way. Facebook, for example, doesn't like to keep partisan affiliation as one of their data points anymore, but when a campaign uploads a voter list that has been tagged as going to vote for us or not, that essentially gives them partisan affiliation. I'll, I'll just add that it's also important to think about why are they targeting you? 
And the reason that they're targeting you is because it's much easier to get that emotional reaction out of you when they know some things about you and can target a message specifically to you. And so I think that is just a reminder that if you sort of follow that rule of if you feel really emotionally driven by something you see, you need to think extra critically about it is even more important in an environment where you're being targeted for that exact purpose. As a fun experiment, there are some cases where you can turn off the targeted ad service and, and ask places not to track you, and I did that. And I used to get ads for video games, and now I get ads for hearing aids. <laughs> so there are times where it actually isn't so bad to have it on, if I'm, if I'm being honest. Although I am an aging boomer of, of the millennial variety, so who knows. So OK, we've got, what do we got left? Two, three minutes? Got, all right, I got one back here. Thank you. My name's Andrew, and you mentioned, Professor Dubois, that idea of the difficulty in differentiating between information that's part of political discourse and misinformation. And I'm wondering if anyone on the panel has a definition of misinformation that would fit on a post-it note to help with that distinction, as we discuss it, if you're talking about regulation especially. So Claire Wardell, who's at First Draft, has a seven different types of fake news. Um, article and she has one table which is really great that has post-it note size definitions of these different terms. I am not remembering the definition offhand, but go to first draft it and find her piece. I mean, I think misinformation is, the definition is basically just information that is incorrect, but is not intended to deceive. There's also a great Scientific American article about this that you can look up that is actually, it's behind a paywall of, if, if you've read a certain number of articles, but we should support media, so it's worth paying for, uh, which can also help with the misinformation problem. But, uh, and Claire Waddell's quoted in it. And so let me just plus one that, because she does great work. Do we have, we got one more left? Yes, hello. My name is Hannah. And um, I seem to understand that you're advocating for some kind of censorship of information. I come from a country where that situation was the norm. And so uh, I am quite um, intrigued by your comments. And I'd like to ask you, can you give an example of a time or a historic period or moment when censorship actually helped preserve democracy? And an opposite example, when censorship has harmed democracy? Thank you. So. I've thought about this censorship question a lot, and what I've come to is, if you want to frame information control as censorship, then we are inevitably being censored all of the time because there's too much information for us to consume, too much information for us to make our own decisions about which of the masses we should pay attention to and which we shouldn't, and so we need tools like Google and Facebook and Twitter and whatever else you use to help us sift through all of that information. And so if that is censorship in your view, then I think censorship is absolutely fundamentally required for a democracy at this point. So I think, I mean, I wouldn't characterize what any of us said has been being yeah, pro-censorship. I, I don't, I don't think, think we said that. But um, I think it's better to think about it in terms of prioritization. When I hear censorship, I think of a very bin binary of sort of like, okay, these are things you can say, these are things you can't say. And I don't think any of us were talking about putting those kind of 
limits on, on information, but I think the, the point Elizabeth is making is that at this point, and it's at this point there is too much information for any of us to be able to handle it, and that trend is only going to continue. And so already these companies prioritize information for what should be elevated to the top, to what we see, and what should be downplayed. And so that is already happening. And I, I wouldn't classify that as censorship, but that is already happening. And so it's about making it more transparent and having these discussions around what we want risen to the top and what we want downplayed. I'll give the last word to Elizabeth. I would just add one, one more specific example to not have both of us have skirted your question. Uh, I think hate speech laws are a really good example of when um, not allowing certain kinds of discourse is fundamental to democracy. For everyone to be able to participate equally and everybody to be able to cast their ballot without being um, influenced by some undue force, we have to have hate speech laws that prevent that kind of, of um, marginalization of particular groups. As the old line goes, uh, freedom for the wolves is death to the lambs. Uh, well, that brings us uh, to our time. So first of all, let me say thank you to Elizabeth and to Katie and to each and every one of you for listening. So thank you very much. Interact helps Canadians access funds their way. Products like Interact Debit and Interact eTransfer have made Money Mobile taking it from the confines of traditional banking and ushering it into the digital age. As consumers adapt to new technology, so does Interact. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.